Oftentimes, uh, people will be frustrated with a content moderation decision that is actually quite consistent with the rules that have been set. They just don't like the rules. Welcome to Elise and Ashley Break the Internet, a series where we're exploring the ins and outs of Section 230, a law that has raised important questions about the nature of civic discourse and online speech. I'm Elise Dick, Research Fellow at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We are a tech policy think tank based in Washington, D.C. And I'm Ashley Johnson. I'm a research analyst covering internet policy at ITIF. In this episode, we'll be examining proposed legislation to amend Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that aims to prevent online platforms from censoring certain political viewpoints, as well as other proposed reforms. Joining us, we have Klon Kitchen, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Klon was previously director of the Heritage Foundation's Center for Technology and Policy and authored the Heritage Foundation's Section 230 Reform Proposal, Section 230, Mend It, Don't End It. Welcome to the podcast, Klon. I'm happy to be here. So, Klon, this past year has shown everyone, not just policy wonks like us, just how tough it is to get content moderation right. What do you see as the greatest challenges companies face when it comes to user-generated content, and how well are they addressing these issues? Uh, yeah, that's the that's the question of the hour. Um, I would say not well is the short answer to your question. Um, and there uh, is a a pretty big divide in terms of why people think they're not doing well. Um, I don't think this has to be a partisan issue, but if it, it tends to kind of go down that road sometimes. And I think many on the political left feel as though um, these platforms, social media platforms particularly, are, are failing to address a, pro- a proliferation of, of hate speech and, and, and other uh, you know, incitements to violence and things like that. And so they actually are concerned about a lack of moderation. Whereas many on the political right uh, are concerned about a perception of, of over-content moderation, feeling that their voices are being um, constrained online, that they're not being able to see the news that they want to see, or they're not being able to share the news or, or share the, uh, the opinions that they want to share. And so essentially everybody is pretty frustrated. And uh, these companies uh, in one side have, have got a, a hard job. And and it's understandable, but on another sense, they've uh, they've failed to frankly explain themselves well and to appropriately uh, build expectations. And I think that uh, that's what's led us to this point right here. So you bring up the different perceptions of what content is and is not online, and I'm curious whether you think you know whether it's intentional or unintentional. Do you see that current? approaches to content moderation favor certain types of speech or disproportionately amplify certain types of content? Or do you think that's more of a perception on the user side? Well, um, I think the, the most important thing to understand when, when having this conversation is to understand the sheer scale and scope of content that's on these platforms. Um, and, you know, I think every year there's this interesting infographic called, uh, and it's, uh, you know, every minute of every day. And it's, you know, I think most recently it talked about how on YouTube, for example, there are 500 hours of new video upload, uploaded to, to YouTube every minute of every day. Right. And that's just one platform. That's not tweets and, you know, everything else. And so just the sheer scale of this problem is, is sometimes lost in this conversation. 
So there's a lot. So we're asking these platforms to do a lot. Nevertheless, um, the concerns that those who uh, on the political right raise about feeling as though they are being um, marginalized or, or, or not allowed to participate in a way that they would want. That's kind of hard because it, it's, it's wrapped up in a lot of uh, things like the underlying algorithms that are used to kind of streamline content moderation. And on the one hand, the companies say, no, 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 that's crazy. We would never do that because we're not political. We're providing a service for everyone. Um, but then when they talk about themselves, they, they use kind of morally laden language like right side of history and we're trying to make the world a better place. And then when I think it's inarguable that most of these companies advance a kind of a left of center or liberal worldview about how they view themselves and the world they're trying to create, it's not entirely crazy for people on the right to say, well, okay, we're just going to take you at your word that one, you have this worldview and two, you intend to use your platform to advance that worldview. And then when we see a content moderation decision taken that feels like it disadvantages us, we're going to interpret it through that lens. So that's that's not crazy. I don't think, however, that um, that it's quite that crystal clear. Um, and I don't think the platforms have helped themselves any because what what often is the case is a confusion, one, about expectations. So often people on both sides of the aisle will talk about a First Amendment standard online or a, uh, or a, they'll, they'll decry um, censorship. Well, the problem with that is that First Amendment and censorship apply to the government, not private sector entities. And so that's a little bit of a category uh, mistake, I think. Um, but then two, um, oftentimes uh, people will be frustrated with a content moderation decision that is actually quite consistent with the rules that have been set. They just don't like the rules. Right. So they think, hey, you shouldn't take me down. I should be able to say X. Well, that may or may not be true, but you know, Facebook or whomever has made a decision that you can't say X. And they're actually enforcing the, the decision quite consistently. Um, but you just think that they shouldn't have that decision to begin with, right? And that's a different thing. That's something that's worth debating. And I don't think you know, users should just kind of you know, take it, I guess, but, but, you know, let's, let's fight the fight that, that, that actually is. Okay. So that's the right on the political left side. Uh, it's the same thing where a, a platform's made a decision that they're going to allow certain types of, of conversation. And they think that you shouldn't, and that that type of conversation is, you know, out of bounds and shouldn't be allowed. And they get frustrated with that. And then they kind of go against the platform and, and rail on them for, you know, uh, for, for adopting the standard that they've adopted. Building off of that point, do you think platforms should be able to define their own parameters of acceptable speech or should there be limits on their ability to do so? I think they absolutely should be able to set their own standards for, for speech. They are a private institution. They are offering a platform. They have the right, uh, so long, within the law, within the bounds of the law, uh, they should absolutely have the right to determine what content they will and will not allow. And it's important for people to realize that the rules we make for these platforms will bind every platform that's online. So what, you know, the American Enterprise Institute can and cannot post online is determined by them. 
Um, if we change these rules, that affects what AI can do online. Same thing with ITIF or anyone else. Um, and so there's no kind of one set of special rules just for the big tech guys, right? We're talking about the rules that govern online speech, period. Uh, so you have advocated in the past for reform to Section 230, but argue that the law itself should remain. There shouldn't be a full repeal. So let's start with the positive. Uh, what do you think that Section 230 gets right? Well, I think the original intent of Section 230 was to make the Internet a less awful place. <laughs> it was, it, it, you know, it, it was the idea of incentivizing platforms or online uh, entities to be able to freely take action against some of the worst content that's out there without being, you know, concerned that they're going to be sued into oblivion. Um, I think that's still a good policy goal. I, I think that uh, we want online platforms to uh, have the freedom to police content like pornography or sexual child exploitation or online harassment or all kinds of other things um, aggressively and freely. Uh, I also think that as a free speech issue and also as a as a kind of intellectual property issue, they ought to be able to use these platforms the way they say fit. So uh, I think the uh, the original intent of Section 230 was uh, is still a good policy objective. Um, I think it does have the net benefit of enabling a, a greater agility when it comes to innovation and things like that. Uh, and so I think that gets right. And I think that those benefits are, are worth trying to preserve if we can. So moving on to reforms, there are uh, quite a few proposed reforms, and your uh, report that you wrote for the Heritage Foundation actually included uh, one such reform that would change or clarify the language in Section 230C2, which shields online services from liability when they act in good faith to remove content that is obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. So why does this provision need further clarification? What problems does it pose for online speech and content moderation in its current form? Uh, Yeah, so there's two parts to that. So the first is what's called the good faith provision. And then the second part is the otherwise objectionable section. I'll take those in turn. Um, Good faith is... uh, is not it's 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 a fairly common term in law, uh, and it's and it's I think reasonably understood. But in in the case of Section two thirty, I think some further refinement would be helpful. Um, I take my cue from um, a recommendation by DOJ, but I don't think that's the only good option. I just I use that as a point of reference in the in the paper that I wrote. But specifically, the idea of of the good faith clause and how we can kind of refine that a little bit more is to make clear that good faith is going to include with the, you know, that they act with the specific intention of not deliberately disenfranchising any particular group. Um, and so it's, it, it will fold into it. The idea of establish whatever rules you want, that's your freedom, but whatever rules you establish enforce them fairly. Um, and, you know, look, there's always going to be some nuance here and there's no kind of silver bullet language that's going to make it all perfect. Uh, but I think providing some kind of definitional fortitude to that notion of good faith would be helpful just because so, and this goes to the kind of issues on the political right, um, there are so many concerns about the unfair treatment of, of, of speech online or the, the biased application of these rules. I think that could go a long way. On the otherwise objectionable portion of the language, where you have this list of kind of offensive things that can be removed 
then you have this other language tacked on at the bottom called uh, you know otherwise objectionable, which has subsequently been interpreted by multiple courts to essentially mean whatever, right? What what just whatever, and. In the one sense, I like it because you want to give a certain level of, of freedom to these platforms. You don't want to you don't want to have them completely bound only to the language that's in the text uh, in terms of what actions they can take. But that has been so broadly interpreted that it has allowed things that, frankly, go in the exact opposite direction of the intent of Section Two Thirty. So, for example. The, the protections afforded by Section 230, not only in this provision, but in including this provision, have enabled a revenge porn website uh, that is devoted to posting nude images without the consent of those whose images are being posted. Um, it has included a message board that knowingly facilitated illegal activity and then refused to collect information about that activity. Um, it included a website uh, hosting sex trade advertisements whose design and the way they actually set themselves up was specifically intended to prevent the detection of the trafficking, um, you know, and a whole host of other things. And all of those things um, were, you know, in part, not exclusively, but in part enabled by this notion of, you know, the freedom that comes with otherwise objectionable. And um, I think that flies in the face of the intent of the, of the provision. And I think some refinement there would be, would be helpful. So other proposed reforms uh, would aim to prevent bad actors from taking advantage of Section 230's liability shield. Yep. Um, how might Congress change the law to carve out bad actors? And do you think that this would be effective and solve some of the problems that Section 230, 230's critics have with the law? Yeah, I think that I think that could go go uh, a long way. Uh, so I in, in, in my paper, I, I divide this into two parts. First, I, I say we should actually create what I call a bad Samaritan carve out. And I simply say that uh, the provision specifically should remove liability protections for any service that acts purposefully with the conscious object to promote, solicit, or facilitate material activity that they know or should know violates federal law, right? So if, if a company or platform sets themselves up with the express purpose of or knowingly or should knowingly uh, facilitates uh, illegal activity, well, then there's no way they should have Section 230 protections, right? So if you're, just to make something up, if, if, if you're an online uh, provider who's trafficking child pornography, under no circumstances whatsoever, you know, should they receive any kind of um, uh, you know, protections, or, I mean, that would be a federal crime already, but, you know, something like, you know, the facilitation of, of drug sales, or there's a whole host of activities that would fall under that. The second part uh, that's related is I actually want to clarify in the statute itself that there would be no effect on any, on any anti-terrorism, child sex abuse, or cyber stalking laws. So as we reform Section 230, I don't want online providers to be in any way concerned about being aggressive against those those types of activities on their platform. I want Facebook, I want YouTube, I want Twitter and all the others to continue being very aggressive and rooting out and getting rid of any terrorism-related content, child sex abuse content, cyber-stalking content. Uh, and, and I think that provision should just be made very clear in the law so as to um, enable that type of activity. So um, sort of 
jumping off of that, there are a lot of proposed reforms and particularly bills that have uh, been introduced in Congress that carve out certain uh, types of activity or content from Section 230. So that it's the liability shield in Section 230 would no longer apply in the case of that type of content. What do you think of these kinds of proposals? And, you know, are, are is this the right approach or is it not the right approach? Well, so oftentimes it depends on the specific carve out. So like what I just talked about, I mean, I, I've given you two carve outs there most recently. And I obviously think that those are good ideas. Uh, but I think that I think that they're good ideas in part because I think they go to the core of the intent of Section 230. Right. I, I think they're I think they're kind of bound and rooted in the original intent of the of the the legislation. Um to the degree that that other carve outs are being offered and and are similarly tied to the intent, I'm very happy to engage those and think about them and that kind of thing. However, there is a tendency, and this may be more to this may be getting more at what you were talking about. There is a tendency to view Section 230 as the end all be all silver bullet. We're going to fix the internet, and I think that is a mistake. Uh, I don't think it. Is, I don't think the provision is that. Uh, and I think that if we go kind of trouncing through the Section 230 garden without thinking about where we're walking and what we're doing, we're going to create a lot more problems than than we're tr- than we're actually going to fix. And so um, I think again, Section 230, the the benefits of 230 are worth trying to preserve if we can. But I think part of that pr- preservation effort is going to involve limiting what we're doing trying to keep it nice and tight, trying to do what we think is necessary to get the provision back to its original intent and to deliberately narrow its scope, not broaden it. And then on to a different type of reform um, that, again, that you have touched on in your work. What, ag- what about uh, proposed sunset provisions for Section 230? What would be the potential benefits of this? And would there be any potential risks such as for new entrants into the market, like startups with business models that rely on third-party content. Yeah, so uh, I do. This is this is the I, I do propose a sunset provision. It's the provision I I hold the most loosely of, of the ones that I offered, um, because it, it it comes with some some trade offs. I I offered a seven year sunset uh, because I thought that was the kind of Goldilocks point where. It's long enough to where it provides a level of stability that people can can plan against, companies can plan against and and, and presume. Um, but it's frequent enough to where, frankly, you kind of keep the pressure on the companies not to grow complacent, uh, not to um, not to begin presuming on these things and getting a little lax in terms of the way they go about the um, the the content moderation and other decisions that would affect this. Um, I'm not wedded to it. I think it's a good idea in part because of the way technology evolves. So when this was originally written in 1996, man, the internet was a fundamentally different thing. And so what one of the challenges we found is that trying to have modern policy conversations about 230, we're really shoehorning a lot of things into it that that just don't fit into the language very well. I imagine that is going to continue to be the case going forward. So if we have a regular sunset every seven years, you know that's that's a pretty good generational evolution time frame for for the internet and uh so you know yes there's some efficiency trade offs there 
But if the net result is one where we have a, a provision like 230 that is routinely updated to match the internet of, of you know that we have, you know, I think there may be some some good you know benefits to that. And then finally, uh, on the topic of proposed reforms, are there any other reforms that I haven't touched on that you think Congress should consider or that you don't think are going in the right direction? Well, the one big one that uh, I have I have made, I don't I don't know that many others have made, um, is I do not think that Section two hundred and thirty protections should be made contingent on what they call exceptional access, or frankly, any other kind of law enforcement cooperation. So, there have been a, a number of legislative proposals that would do just that. That would take Section two hundred and thirty and require online platforms to be more aggressive in their cooperation with law enforcement or with the intelligence community if they were to receive Section 230 protections. I think that confuses the issue. Um, When we talk about exceptional access, we're talking specifically about um, providing law enforcement with exceptional access to encrypted devices or data. It's not necessarily backdoors, but that's kind of the the shorthand that's often used, kind of law enforcement backdoors to to data. I think that 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 issue is just fundamentally different and separate from what's going on in 230. Similarly, people often uh, use Section 230 and antitrust in the same breath. Uh, they're related but completely different, uh, and I don't think that um, that those two things should be dealt from a legislative or policy standpoint. You know, in the same way or at the same time, even. Uh, so just keeping those distinctions, I think, is is pretty important uh, and, and is not always the case um, when when that conversation is happening. The, the final thing I'll say that I think really goes to the heart of a lot of the issues that uh, from a from a politics standpoint with 230. Is we do need to clarify the line between acceptable editing and normal editing and and, um, you know, kind of. Um, labeling and becoming a publisher, because the whole the whole presupposition on two thirty is that these online uh, platforms they're not publishers and therefore they shouldn't be held a- accountable for the the, the kind of specific content. But there are a number of common practices like labeling and delisting and context commentaries and things like that that are not technically understood as content editing, but clearly affect how content is accessed or understood or shared. And so I think if we're going to update Section 230, we should address that issue and draw a clearer line on those practices and and what does and does not violate the editorial preconditions of 230 protections. So for our final question that we ask all of our guests, we want to know what your verdict is on Section 230. Should we keep it, amend it, or repeal it? Well, I'm I'm very clear on this. I think we should amend it. Um, uh, I think that. Um, there are some on the political left who want to use 230 as a type of um, of, uh, of social experimentation. There are some on the right who want to use Section 230 as a way of kind of political score settling. And I think in the middle are most Americans who just want to get online and not be manipulated or abused. And I don't think that's too much to ask. I think 230 is a great way uh, for us to find that middle ground. And I think it's worth um, protecting if we can And so uh, my preferred political outcome is to mend it, not end it. 
Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Klon. If you want to hear more from Klon, you can follow him on Twitter at Klon Kitchen. That's it for this episode. If you liked it, then please be sure to rate us and tell friends and colleagues to subscribe. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn too, at ITIFDC.